Hey everybody, thanks for checking out the Glendale Road Church of Christ podcast. You're welcome to join us anytime you're around. We are at 1101 Glendale Road in Murray, Kentucky. We meet for worship every Sunday morning at 9 a.m., followed by our Bible study at 10 a.m., and we come back every Sunday evening for a bonus worship hour at 6 p.m. Also, every midweek on Wednesday at 7 p.m., we have a Bible study. You'd be welcome to join us. We'll be sure to save a seat for you. Now, here's this week's sermon. Today's reading can be found on page 1859 in your Pew Bible. It's taken from the first book of Peter, chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, and I'll be reading from the New King James Version. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? God is good. And all the time. I've probably, as you have, heard the question, if God is good, why is there so much suffering in the world? The first passage that came to mind were the words of Jesus in John 15, 20, when he said, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep your words also. So every one of us at some point or another have gone through things that we wish we never had to. Maybe not necessarily persecution because of our faith, but maybe a rough patch where something wasn't going well or something had happened that was really, really bad. And it's easy to turn to God and be a little upset and say, well, you're good, but why am I going through this? And I remember I was asked that one time specifically by someone uh, who I could be very frank with. And I said, in reply, do you think you're better than God's son? And this friend said, well, no. I said, well, look what they did to him. Now, my son, I love with all my heart. He's afraid I was going to tell something on him. You should have seen his face. But I love with all my heart. And the way I think about it, if my son suffered, guess what? Everybody else can suffer. But God's not like me. He doesn't think the way that I think. But yet Jesus makes the point, a servant is not greater than his master. Because our Lord suffered, we should not expect a life free of it. And if we have one, that's a blessing in and of itself. But what he says here in uh, verses 12 through 14, he urges that they rejoice in suffering. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceedingly joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, He is blasphemed, but on your part, He is glorified. Now, one of my favorite rabbis of all time, Gary Evans, made a statement, and it's one of those that I've never forgotten. He said, this world, this life, for the 
one who is not saved is the closest to heaven that they'll ever get. But this life for a child of God is the closest to hell that they'll ever get. And that's, it's stuck, Gary, it's stuck. But it's, it's, it's rather true when you look at it as the whole. Uh, any present suffering may be God's judgment. And when he talks about, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, he was talking about what you're going through right now is that judgment. Because when it comes to eternity, we're going to be glorified and we're going to become something far greater than what this life has to offer. So why does God allow the Christian to suffer? Why wouldn't he? Jesus suffered in giving salvation, so it's only reasonable that you and I might, but I promise you this, I would much rather suffer in this life than in eternity. Whatever we go through now would pale in comparison to any suffering that eternity holds for the sinner and for the ungodly. And you know, the thing is, even through the suffering as a Christian here in life, there's still something because of our faith that can carry us through. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas and some others were in Philippi. They had met Lydia, they had converted her and many others. And then they go from there and they're walking through the streets and there's this girl running around, said she, she was possessed with the demon, is what our English Bibles say. And she's going around saying, these men are servants of the Most High God. Now you would think, uh, yeah, but she didn't have a spirit of divination. Specifically, she had the spirit of Python. Now in Greek mythology, Python was this mythical snake that apparently fought with Apollos who subdued the snake and, and threw him down in the depth. But now the spirit would possess people and they would tell fortunes and all these things. And so the, the guys that were in control of this girl, they used this and they made money. But when everybody in Philippi heard her saying, these guys are servants of the Most High God, they're not thinking the God of Israel. They're probably thinking Zeus. That was their Most High God. Or uh, in the Roman parlance, Jupiter, not the God of Israel. And so Paul, he gets a little fed up with her, and he turns around and he rebukes the spirit and the spirit exits her, and now her handlers see, we're not going to be able to make any money anymore. And so they, they, they grab Paul and Silas. Now, when you read the context, Luke was there, and I believe Timothy was also there. Paul and Silas, the two Jewish-looking guys, they grab them, bring them before the magistrates of the city, and they say, these guys are teaching things unlawful. They are teaching against the decrees of Caesar. And so they proceed to strip them naked and then they begin to beat them and then they put them in the innermost prison. And most people going through that would have been like, man, I don't know if this evangelism job is, is good for us. It's, it seems to be pretty bad for our health. But you get to a point and at that point it says, but at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. How about that? You know, when you have faith in the Lord and you go through hard times, your faith will show through. Either it will be a faith that is rock solid or you'll learn if it's, a, if it's false. If it's just a convenience. Derek leads a song quite often, life is easy when you're up on the mountain. 
right? But when you're in the valley, where is God then? These men were in the valley. I mean, falsely accused, stripped naked, beaten before a crowd, falsely imprisoned. And the accusation was partly, these Jews have done this. If you have faith in God and if you cling to Him, no matter what you go through, you'll always have a prayer to pray and you'll always have a song to sing, just like Paul and Silas when they were in that Philippian prison. When you trust in the Lord, even in the darkest moments, commit yourselves to the one who paid it all. Whether we suffer as Christians, our true motives are going to be revealed. In those moments, we demonstrate if we truly believe in God, or if faith was a convenience that has now become inconvenient. But this seems so counter. Why would I ever rejoice in suffering? It just doesn't make sense. Much to the contrary, we, we look at suffering and think maybe this is God's judgment. But the, the nature of the kingdom is to the world upside down. It, it, it doesn't make sense. I mean, after all, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, if we made our list of Beatitudes, it would not read like that. It would not read like that. We would say poor in spirit, mourn, meek. I mean, let's just pick one. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. When you see an adult who is pure in heart, we don't call them pure in heart. We say, he has no clue. That guy is naive. He just doesn't understand the way that the world works and such things. But blessed are the pure in heart. So sometimes we look down on the things that Jesus says are blessed. Blessed are those who mourn. We've probably all been there mourning something. It may be the loss of someone we love, but you can mourn losing a job. You can mourn uh, a, a change in life where your kid grows up, gets married, and is about to move out, and you don't know how to deal with that. <laughs> there are all sorts of things that can cause one to mourn, but nobody likes mourning. Why does Jesus call it blessed? Why is this whole thing so backward? It's not that it's backward, it's that we are backward. We view the things that God blesses as curse more than blessings. Let me give you another nice little reading here. In James chapter 1, he urges something very similar to what we read here. Verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Count it all joy when you face various trials? We don't do that. And if we did, 
folks around us would think we're nuts. Why are they so happy? If there's any glimmer of happiness that we can have through the bad times, it's because Jesus, our Savior, endured suffering. And by us enduring suffering, we are somewhat partaken of His. But there's something else that we must be careful to do as well. In verses 15 and 16, we have to recall the source of our suffering. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a busybody in other people's matters. But yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this name. Now, sometimes we suffer because we've made poor decisions. All right? That's one thing. Growing up, I've told you some of the infamous sayings of my father, you know, sayings such as, if you're going to be stupid, you've got to be tough. Something like that. And also, you know, just realize what will happen if you do. Be careful what you ask for because you just might get it, and on and on and on. But he would say, if you do something bad and there's a consequence, don't expect me to bail you out. I will not bail you out. I will take you to whomever I need to take you. A lot of parents don't do that anymore. Uncle Jim told a story about when uh, first day of school, I know we got first day of school coming up here soon, and uh, uh, granddaddy would take daddy and the uncle's to class on the first day and he would be dressed in his uniform his police uniform and he would go in and meet the teacher he would say I'm Jim Brown this is Bo Brown my son I expect him to mind you and I expect for you to make him mind and if he ever does anything I expect you to let me know and they know uh, they knew that if you got in trouble at school, what you were going to get at home was far worse. Some of y'all grew up that way, didn't you? I know I did. <sighs> so if you're suffering, take a look in the mirror and ask, did I do this to myself? I was years ago asked over to the house of a member who had been unwell and at that time, she had received a terminal diagnosis due to lung cancer. And so I said, sure. So I go over to the house and, you know, knock on the screen door and they come in. So I open the door and whoosh, big old ball of smoke came billowing out. And I went in and, you know, she just finished one cigarette and she lit up right another. She was a chain smoker. And we're sitting there, and she's got her oxygen there. Now, you know fire near an oxygen tank is not the smartest thing. But she had her oxygen tank, had it on, smoking her cigarette. She said, well, they tell me I've got lung cancer. Would you pray for me? Yes, ma'am, I'll pray for you. And I did. But it wasn't long after that she passed away. And, you know, we had the, the services at the funeral home, the burial, and then we had a meal at church. And we were there at church, and, uh, you know, we, we were, I was walking in behind somebody, I don't know who it was, I guess friends or family of the departed, and they were 
talking and I could hear. They were older and apparently once you get to a certain age, you become deaf and you have to yell when you speak. And so they were yelling as they spoke. And one of the guys said, God could have healed her if he wanted to. And I'm like, in my mind, I'm going, yeah, he, he could have. But God didn't make her smoke. You'll think I'm heartless for telling you this. Years ago, mom called and she said, son, they found a spot on my lungs. I'm afraid it's cancer. And my mother's a smoker. I said, well, okay. She said, are you not concerned? I said, well, mom, I mean, you smoke. What do you think might happen? You know, it's kind of like these folks that they're like, we're pregnant. Do you know that if you do that, this is a possible outcome? And so, so people don't think about consequences. You know, so we have to take personal ownership. Yeah, I did it, and this was the result. I was wrong. Now I got to pay the price. Now the thing is, we can receive forgiveness from God for our trespasses, but we still may have to face some sort of penalty here on earth. So if I go out and I rob a store at gunpoint and I get caught by the authorities and they return all the goods and I feel bad and I ask God to forgive me for my sin, for thievery, for being so careless with other people's lives, God will forgive that. But I still have to face the justice system here on earth. And a lot of times people think, well, if God forgives, then there shouldn't be any ramification that follows after. God forgives, and that has eternal consequences. But we may still have consequences here on this earth. Someone told me a story when they began college. They went into, they went into the classroom, and it was biology class. And the first day of the class, the professor said, how many of you are Christians? And of course, this person who told me this said that they and maybe one or two others raised their hand. The professor said, well, by the end of this class, you won't be. That's nice to meet you too, right? But that's how the professor started that class. Verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this manner. I want to I make something clear. In my younger years, I grew up in a tradition, and people would have said, what denomination are you? And I would have said that tradition. And my wife would have said what hers was either. If they ask me today, I, I just, I'm not a denomination, I'm a Christian. Full stop. I'm not a Campbellite, I'm not a Church of Christer. I'm like, that sounds like a car, right? Church of Chrysler or something like that. I'm a Christian. That is it. There doesn't need to be anything else attached to that. It's not any other system of beliefs that were nailed to the cross to save me from my sins. It was Jesus Christ and Him only. I am a Christian. And I'll tell you this, 
If my wife, who carries my surname, decided she wanted to be called by some other, other fellow's name, I'd have a problem with it. Others may not, and that's fine. But he specifically, this is one of, I believe, maybe two or three times the name Christian is ever mentioned in Scripture. There's Acts 11 when they were first called Christians by others. And there's this, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but glorify God in this matter. There was a Rwandan man in 1980 who was forced by his tribe to either renounce Jesus or face certain death. He refused, and he was killed on the spot. But the night before he was put to death, he wrote out his commitment to the Lord. And it's called The Fellowship of the Unashamed. I'm going to read that to you. I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed. The die has been cast. I've stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense and my future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, chintzy giving and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotion, plaudits, or popularity. I now live by presence, lean by faith, love by patience, lift by prayer, and labor by power. My pace is set, my companions few, my guide reliable, my mission clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, deterred, lured away, turned back, diluted, or delayed. I'll not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I must go until heaven returns, give until I drop, preach until all know, and work until He comes. And when He comes to get His own, you'll have no problem recognizing me. My colors are clear. The time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Paul gives us a little bit of a glimpse into the coming of our Lord, as there are many other passages that do. Notice in 1 Peter, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel? Paul has similar language here. Since it's a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Two different passages mention obeying the gospel of God. Peter says, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear if the righteous is scarcely saved? Paul says, they will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 to 4 says, I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. This is the Gospel. Three things. His death, His burial, and His resurrection. And you say, well, how do I obey that? And the closest that we find appears in Romans 6. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Notice I've got those words underlined. Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. But in addition to this, leading up to this point, in Romans, Paul has emphasized the role that faith plays. Faith, fully trusting in God. If you don't have faith and you just go and be baptized, all you did was got wet. You have to have faith. And you have to trust that what God says He will do, that He will do. And I bring this up mainly because Peter points out that if we who are Christians are scarcely saved, what does that say about those who have not obeyed the gospel? And as we read, they will suffer destruction and everlasting punishment from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His might. It doesn't sound like a very appealing prospect. But I want you to know, if you want to obey the gospel, this is what you do. You have faith. Don't back up. I'm not done. I promise. I figured I'd warn that off. You have to have faith. Faith is believing in Jesus as God's only Son. And not only must you have faith, but spewing from faith is going to naturally be obedience. That will entail being baptized, reenacting the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. When you have faith, you will be moved to confess or repent of your sins and to put on Christ in baptism. And if you keep that faith, it's going to take you to the point to where you grow and grow and grow and grow. Not like a plot of land that isn't tended but like a well-cultivated field that has a flourishing garden, you have to cultivate your faith. I don't know who wrote this, but I'll read it with that caveat. It is the old choice which still is presented to every soul. The old crisis which reappears in every experience. Caesar or Christ? That is the question. 
The vast, attractive, skeptical world with its pleasures and ambitions and its prodigal promise, or the meek, majestic, and winning figure of Him of Nazareth. The election remains for each of us, and the moment of the election in the shaded and solemn valley of decision will be memorable in our history when suns for us have ceased to shine. You're now in the valley of decision. And I would urge, if you haven't, to make the decision to become a Christian, to have that faith, make that confession, and reenact in the waters of baptism, the death, burial, and resurrection. I would also say to my brothers and sisters, none of us are perfect, we all know that, but if you've gone a step further than what you wish and you want to ask God for forgiveness, judgment-free zone right up here, just so you know. We'll, we'll pray with you. We'll pray with you and for you. Just come to the front as we stand together and sing.